Hello listeners, I'm Alex Bahamid with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Johal is joined by Liana Patrick, Assistant Professor in SFU's Faculty of Health Sciences and a current researcher in residence with SFU's Community Engaged Research Initiative. They discuss Liana's work at the intersection of community, health, and justice, as well as her filmmaking and community engagement experience. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Below the Radar. I'm really excited to be sitting here at 312 Maine with Dr. Liana Patrick. She's a faculty member, assistant professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences. Welcome, Liana. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Uh, Wondering if we can uh, just begin, if you could introduce yourself a little bit. Mm -hmm. My name is Liana, and on my father's side, I'm Yinkadane, which in our language means people of the land in most indigenous languages, the way people refer to themselves has some sort of connection to the land. Another word for our people is dakel, which is a bit more of a contested term, but means people who travel by water. So we're very connected to our waterways and our lands. And that's in the North interior of British Columbia. And I primarily grew up on Saika's territory, who is a neighbor of my dad's home community, which is the Stelachan First Nation. I'm going to give a bit of an extended introduction here just to place myself so that people kind of understand why I do the work I do. I think it really sort of illuminates my areas of research and my interests and my passions. So on my mom's side, I'm Acadian and Scottish, and she's from Cape Breton Island and Acadie, which is kind of the Grand Pre area of Nova Scotia. So I spent a lot of time there as a child as well. And it's known as uh, Unamagi, Cape Breton Island. So I always felt deep kind of ties to that area too. And in part because our families came over in the 1600s, but an uncle who's a genealogist also found Mi'kmaq ancestry, although my uncle wasn't particularly interested in delving into that history. He was much more interested in the Acadian side of our family. Uh, so, you know, due to the Indian Act, my mother actually gained Indian status when she married my father, which was the opposite from many of my cousins and other family members who lost status when their mothers married non-Indigenous men. But one of the things in our community is that we have retained more or less a clan system and you inherit your clan system through your mother. And so while my cousins may have lost Indian status, they retained their membership and their knowledge of the clan system. And I very much lost my knowledge of that clan system. So uh, when my grandmother passed away in 2006, at her potlatch, we were sat down in the Frog Clan. And I didn't understand the reasons for this. And I still don't fully understand the complexities of the clan system, but I do know that that is part of a reintegration into the community. So my dad is Caribou Clan, but that's through his mother. And the Frog Clan was my grandmother's father's clan. And so according to our rules and structures, this is how we would become part of that system again. So I will often introduce myself as being from the Frog Clan, but it's all part of this really complex colonial history. And I think that's really informed every single thing that I've done throughout my life. And yeah. (laughs) Wow. Um, It's a long kind of circuitous route to taking on an academic position, but you've had a whole set of lives leading up to that, Mm -hmm. including working in government, lived experience, many other things. You have a great interdisciplinary background. I know you did creative writing Mm -hmm. for your, your undergrad, but... I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your time leading into working for for government. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I suppose one of the common strands throughout all of this experience is the love of storytelling and writing. And I had initially wanted to be a journalist. That was what my training was at the University of Victoria. And I did the co-op program and worked for a newspaper. I actually ended up 
working for the Native Voice newspaper, which was the oldest Native newspaper in Canada, which was an incredible experience, especially because I was writing at it during what was known as the Salmon Wars, the Fish Wars in the summer of 1993. And at the same time, I realized that journalism was not the path for me. <laughs> I, I did not want to pursue that pathway. But I still love the storytelling. And so as any good creative writing grad who can't find a job, I went to work for government in their communications department. And I worked in the treaty negotiations office. And when I started, I was really hopeful about what was happening. You know, we're talking about coming out of the era of the OCA crisis, you know, when that sort of national solidarity, um, which we saw as well last year with the Wet'suwet'en actions, you know, really, uh, I guess, emerged as this powerful force. And governments were recognizing that they needed to address their responsibility to a history that had produced, you know, these conditions that, that people were facing and displacement from their lands. And so being a part of that made a lot of sense to me because I wanted to, I guess, with my storytelling, with my creative writing degree, with my history degree as well, I wanted to be a part of that change. I wanted to be a part of something that was really going to, you know, help our communities to move forward. I got very, very disillusioned <laughs> relatively quickly with those processes and with understanding, recognizing kind of what the values were that were driving that work and what was kind of underpinning it and how really at odds, actually, government and our Indigenous nations were in terms of what the goals are and how we get there. And so I felt like my time in government helped me to see how those structures work and operate and the kinds of values that underpin them. I was starting to see that because it really wasn't until my doctoral research that I sort of really started to see how embedded within policies and mechanisms and ways of doing things are these very particular, really, you know, what is um, white supremacy in action, the ways in which you know, spaces and places are constructed for certain people and not for others. So I didn't really have that kind of deeper understanding that I would have later, but I was starting to see that and I was starting to grapple with that and what that meant for my work. And eventually I needed to find another way to work with communities. I always, when I went in, I was in communications and I got seconded to a treaty negotiation team as a consultation manager. When I would go into the community, I always felt deeply uncomfortable and felt like I was sitting on the wrong side of the table, that the government had endless resources at its disposal and, you know, the communities did not. And I wondered why I was putting my energies towards, you know, a space that had so much. So I, I needed to leave. <laughs> you originally wanted to become a doctor. Yes. So <laughs> that pathway. Uh, well, to understand that, um, I think, you know, I've been really reflecting on how I kind of can provide kind of a coherent description of why and how I do, you know, all the different types of work that I do. But I have to say that I think there have been two things that have really propelled my research. And the first thing is really common, I think, to all researchers, which is the desire to make sense of my world, the desire to understand why things are the way they are. And I think that's why people go into research. They have a question, a hypothesis. They observe things. They want to know, you know, what the meaning is or why things happen the way they do. And so what was happening after I left government, I did my master's degree, which just, like, exploded my mind because I went to school in my undergrad in the early 90s, and Native Studies programs were in existence, but it was really hard to find, you know, courses and programs of study. You know, Trent kind of comes to mind. There were some forerunners back east, but I took every, you know, course that I could, which was, you know, maybe four <laughs> in history, <laughs> and then that was it. And a few in film studies, and you know, that was about it. So when I did my master's degree, it was such an incredible education to kind of connect what I was learning about through my experience working in government and really kind of come to understand the historical, the political, the legal structures upon which, you know, these mechanisms were built, these directives that were happening at the treaty negotiation table were really, you know, built upon this kind of legal framework, which, you know, I think the biggest mind-blowing thing was that it, it was really a fiction. 
it was really a construction, you know, this idea of crown sovereignty, this idea that the land had been, you know, relinquished, especially in the British Columbia context. And this was the whole reason for treaty negotiations. There was, for the most part, largely not treaties negotiated in British Columbia. But the fact of, you know, crown sovereignty and authority over our lands was really something that happened, you know, in a far distant place with absolutely no connection to the many diverse complex nations that live here. So I, I think this, you know, all of these things were becoming really clear and apparent through my cohort, through understanding their experiences, through seeing the connections to my own background and upbringing and just the many kind of people who've been thinking about these issues for a long time, political theorists. So that was a very interdisciplinary education that I did with the Indigenous Governance Program. You know, we were studying law and public policy and history and and sociology. So it was very intertwined. And trying to figure out what I was going to do with this happened at the same time that within my family, we were going through some really profound experiences and very traumatic experiences, you know, very close family member was really suffering with what was known at the time as concurrent disorders, maybe it still is, but have addictions and mental health issues. And so a lot of times my family were turning to me to kind of help and figure out what to do, I guess because I was doing my master's and I thought I'm doing my master's in Indigenous governance. I have no, I have no idea what we're supposed to do. And I started attending these family-oriented sessions around concurrent disorders that brought together family members and physicians and community groups to better understand like what this meant and what was going on and understanding the kind of psychophysiology as well. So they brought together, you know, direct lived experiences with what was actually like the brain chemistry and what was going on for people. And so I was taking that and then I was actually marrying it up with what I was learning about colonization, about the ongoing impacts of these policies and realizing that so much of what I was studying, you know, produced these impacts, produced the social suffering. Whereas I had grown up in a time when it was all about individual dysfunction. If you were native and you were suffering, it was because you were dysfunctional. It was because that you couldn't cope with the modern society and there was something wrong with you and not wrong with the larger society. And I know that seems really basic now in 2020. I think most young people studying this are like, yeah, but this was actually, you know, this was not apparent. This was not something that we were, we were not raised to understand this. We're not raised to understand anything. So we just had to, I feel like me and my family, I can only speak to my own experience. We're given little clues. We're given little bits and pieces of information. We sort of had to put it together for ourselves and we would talk to each other about it. And we would compare notes about our experiences, especially when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came out. You know, we sort of understood, my cousins and I, what our parents' experiences were according to the payments that they got from this process. And the higher the payment, the more the abuse happens. So we had these little, but we didn't necessarily know exactly what had happened because it was too painful and too traumatizing to actually share that information. It was too hard. So putting these pieces together, you know, I always believe in serendipity as well because that year that I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life, when I finished my master's and all this stuff was happening, a medical school opened up in Prince George, back up in my home territory of the carrier people. And this is connected to the second thing that I think has always really driven my work, which is the desire to do something practical and useful. And I thought, well, what more useful thing can you do than than be a doctor who actually understands, has some sense of this colonial history, this ongoing experience of our people, and to go and work in the communities and to bring those sensibilities to bear upon the health of individuals that understands the biology and has that training, Western medical training, but really firmly brings an Indigenous focus and perspective to it. So that drove me to at the age of 31, <laughs> go back to high school, basically. I went back and did math and physics and chemistry, and, um, and then I ended up at UBC. 
which I would recommend a smaller college if you're going to do your prereqs at an older age. Um, Because the classes of 200 didn't do me any favors. But that was really kind of what drove that. And I did end up actually applying to a medical school and got an interview and was waitlisted and didn't make it in. I think I was second on the waitlist when they filled the class. My life could have been very different. And I was going to prepare. Everybody said, apply again, you know, second time, you know, you'll do it. And I just really, I had a a lot of soul searching to do around whether that was actually going to be the pathway for me. And I decided that for a number of reasons, maybe if I'd been 10 years younger, maybe, uh, you know, we need our medical warriors. We need our people in all aspects. But for myself, fighting those battles, because I worked in the faculty of medicine as well while I was doing my prereqs. And I saw the struggles of students and Indigenous instructors and residents. And it was a brutal, brutal struggle. That was the first time I heard this notion of uh, microaggressions. I'd never heard of this before and really came to understand what those were. But I, I knew that I needed to work around community health in some way. I knew that that was going to be, you know, the pathway. It was, it was moving me along my path and I just listened to it. And so that's why I thought a PhD would more immediately allow me to do the kind of work that I wanted to do. Now, there was a period in which you were doing some research and community work in the downtown east side, including with an organization called Dudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about Yeah. That? We just found out this morning we got an article accepted. We wrote up our findings from our qualitative research, and it was accepted in a journal. Oh, Yay. congratulations. So I'm very excited. The world's going to know, well, the world, people who read this journal, but... Hopefully the world. Well, so yeah, I did do work with Juice Club. When I was doing my PhD, I was looking for work and I came across this posting and I thought, this sounds sounds like me. This sounds perfect. And I didn't say that it was Juice Club, but I contacted them and then I found out that it was. And I was really excited because I'd heard really good things about this program. And it's actually become a society now. And it's a model that I think is just so resonant with Indigenous communities. And it's really expanded. So in 2015, I joined the team to evaluate a three-year portion of their life and to see the impact that it had on men and on the community. And it really emerged from some very wise people who have been involved in working in the downtown east side and the community for many years, who saw men coming in, sitting by themselves in the corner, you know, men dying alone uh, without a community around them. And so that was really the origins of Dudes Club, was to provide a space for men to come together and to create community. And that was a huge finding from our evaluation of it, was that, you know, sense of belonging, creation of community, creating a sense of purpose and connection are extremely important factors in the health and well-being of Indigenous people and probably all people, but Dudes Club is primarily Indigenous people. And I think really importantly, too, it provides a safe place for men to consider notions of masculinity, consider what it means to grow up in a society that constructs really specific ideas about what it is to be a man and to kind of start to break that down a little bit. I think that the motto, you know, to leave your armor at the door, that's one of the mottos of Dudes Club, and it's really an important one because people have their armor on for lots of good reasons to protect themselves, to survive. But I think, you know, Dudes Club has done this amazing job of providing a space where that doesn't necessarily have to happen. And we really found that that extended out onto the street as well. The men, you know, after a couple of years, you know, there were men in those groups who knew a whole lot about health and taking care of their own health. And that information was filtering out onto the street and they were sharing it. So there was this, you know, peer support process that I think also was a really, really important part of that work. Yeah, so that's that's definitely a project that's really near and dear to my heart. Is, uh, yeah, another interesting piece I came across that I wasn't aware of before was related to work you did around the Canada-U.S. border. Mm-hmm. You did a Fulbright where you looked at the impact of borders with Indigenous communities. So yeah. maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I would love to. So... I mentioned earlier that I did the co-op program at UVic, the Creative Writing Co-op, which I would highly recommend to students. It's just such an amazing thing to be able to kind of 
test out different areas that you might be interested in and you just never know. So one of my co-op terms was actually with a television show called North of 60. And uh, some people of a certain age might know it. <laughs> Others may not. <laughs> I remember it. You remember it. Yay. <laughs> um, and uh, I was the writing intern, and what an incredible experience that was, too. I was there for one season, and I, I kind of got to see many different aspects of working on a television series. But it really sparked my love of film and video, and I was really interested in that as, you know, another storytelling mode. So after North of 60, I was also thinking about you know, how to incorporate film and video into my work. And in my master's, I interviewed filmmakers and I wrote about the power of film, especially when it is coming from the community, especially when the mode of filmmaking is really different than the kind of traditional standard structure of film where you have like, you know, one filmmaker coming in and telling their story and crafting it, constructing it from their perspective. You know, I was really thinking, what would it look like if the camera was... Should I wait a moment? <laughs> noise of the neighborhood. It's just, it's where we are, it's great. It's the perfect place to do this interview. Um, I was interested in looking at how film could be mobilized to serve the needs of the community rather than just the needs of one, of one filmmaker. And so I wrote in my master's thesis about some really interesting approaches to film, one in which the film was done basically for the community. It was not intended for public consumption. It was intended actually to be shared between youth and elders. They were elders being interviewed in their language and it was intended for, I would argue more of a traditional storytelling structure where the person who's telling the story, it's meant for that person right in that moment. And I think this is the tension in filmmaking, which is that you know our oral stories are very particular. The stories are told for the person who's sitting across from you not necessarily to be, you know, frozen in time and distributed across a wide range. But I think, you know, we're kind of challenging these ideas by doing film work in a different way and figuring out how those traditions can be kind of managed and, and deployed to support our own Indigenous forms of storytelling. So that's to say that I ended up thinking about how I might do that work in the academic context but I realized that I needed some training. So I actually ended up applying for a Fulbright fellowship and went down to the University of Washington for a year and studied with the Native Voices Indigenous Documentary Program. And I have to admit, that was one of my favorite years mm -hmm. <laughs> I've ever spent because I got to hang out with a lot of Indigenous filmmakers, watch films and talk about films and just really immerse myself. It was a wonderful program. So through that, I started developing this film called Travels Across the Medicine Line. And one of my mentors had actually suggested, I think, a book. So I was thinking about what film I was going to make through this, because we all make a film as part of the program. And so a mentor said, well, you know, the Canada-U.S. border is a really contentious place. And, you know, talked a little bit about how the history of its separation of Indigenous communities. So I was really interested in that. And it was only three years after the events of 9-11 happened. So that had really profoundly changed the experience of the border because things had actually started to slowly change for the better for some Indigenous nations. They were actually starting to negotiate with the government to be able to pass back and forth across the border. And after 9-11, that was out the door. It was a hardening of that militarized separation. So initially, I kind of thought of this project as a really kind of a political project where I was going to be looking at that history and that militarization and the socio-political impacts of the border. But what actually emerged, and, you know, I tried to really follow Indigenous principles and protocols as well by reaching out to people that I knew, by visiting with people, um, you know, using kind of my networks and my links to tell the stories that people wanted to tell. And so through that process, I ended up meeting different people than I thought I was going to meet and telling different stories that I didn't think I was going to tell. But I think that through those stories, they do sort of illuminate the larger political and economic structures at play just in really kind of unique ways. So just to give you an example of one of the stories I tell in that film is I spent some time at the Montana 
Alberta border with the Blackfeet Nation. And I ended up spending time at the Pagan Institute, which is this wonderful, amazing Blackfoot-run school that's all in their language and all structured around their philosophies and principles. And I interviewed teachers who were actually brought down from Alberta to teach in Pagan Institute because there were no language speakers in Montana at the time when the institute opened, I think in the 90s. And part of that was because of the colonial history of erasure. And and for various reasons, the language was able to be retained in Alberta. And so it kind of started this cross-border movement. And, you know, different community members talked about not even realizing that they had family, that they had relatives just, you know, up the road in Canada. But through this process of revitalization of the language, they started to realize that they had these connections to this other place. And that history started to become more revealed. And so it was a different story than I thought I was going to tell. But the reassertion of Indigenous, you know, sovereignty through repatriation of language and ceremony as well. People were sharing these different things across the border. Um, And just the brilliance and the resilience and innovation of Indigenous peoples too. Because I remember informally, I don't think this made it into the film, but I was talking to some young people and they were like, yeah, when we go up, you know, to Alberta for different events or occasions, we'll grab, you know, these posters that are up about, like, Bible camp in Alberta, and we'll just show up to the border and be like, where are you going? Bible camp. (laughs) And off they go. They let them go. So they're also, like, being really creative and resilient about how they're doing this, because the fact is that that border remains. It remains as this, you know, colonial structure that's still deeply impacts, you know, all of these communities. And those stories, like there's a million of them up and down the Canada-US border. Yeah, so that was an amazing experience and my first effort to make a documentary film and I swore I would never make another one again because it was really hard and took a long time. So um, later on, you applied to do your doctorate in planning and you've worked inside of government and you certainly have a critique. By this point, through lived experience, your master's in Indigenous governance, um, to think of a profession that's so tied with like a form of linear rationalism, mm-hmm. connections to colonialism, mm-hmm. um, you knew you were kind of walking into a space that you clearly wanted to disrupt. <laughs> and how did you find your way through that, through yeah. that structure? Because, you know, to get into urban questions, to get into other areas from a decolonial perspective, there's this whole role that the university plays in mm-hmm. training people to work in cities that has uh, particular orientations, <laughs> let's yes. just say. Yes. So I don't think I would have actually stayed in planning if it hadn't been for a couple of conditions that were pretty unique to when I started at UBC. Again, serendipity, I ended up meeting the director of the School of Planning because she had actually hired my dad to do subtitles for a film she had done. And my dad writes in carrier syllabics and she had done a film up in my territory. So this was how I ended up meeting Leonie Sandercock, who was my supervisor for my PhD. And I had still intended at that point to go to medical school. And she said, well, if you don't do medical school, think about planning. And I thought, oh, I have no idea what planning is. (laughs) What is this planning? And so I actually ended up attending a few events. And it was funny because I think I came into it with this sort of more radical idea. And then gradually, as it got winnowed down, I realized what a hugely colonial enterprise planning was. Because a book had come out called Unlearning the Colonial Cultures of Planning. And I thought that there was like a body of scholarship around this, but there wasn't. That was actually one of, you know, the first books um, by Libby Porter, an Australian scholar, to kind of interrogate that history. And I was also invited to participate in an advisory to create an Indigenous community planning stream within the school. So, and then I started looking at planning and thinking about, well, I'm really interested in looking at community health and well-being. Planning really sort of seems to encapsulate all of these different daily sort of modes that are really about supporting the health and well-being of people, you know, everything from housing to transportation to the air we breathe, like all of these things, environmental planning. So that was what kind of drew me in. And then I think what really enabled me to stay were the individuals, the people. You know, as we were talking about, we had had a conversation with someone earlier about, you know, there's some really good people that you can do work with and that you can find support from 
even when you're in a structure that is not set up really for you to succeed if you have a critical stance towards what's happening. And I think that's in a way what, you know, with all academic institutions, you know, they can be pretty hostile (laughs) to Indigenous ways of knowing and being. But I ended up working with some folks who were really, you know, wanted to create change, wanted to introduce these concepts and ideas and wanted to embed them in good ways. And I sort of looked at, so the Indigenous community planning stream started the second year. I was in my PhD. And I think that the struggles that we had with it were really a part of trying something new, doing something new, as you will have with any endeavor that is introducing different, you know, ways of thinking about things. So it'll be, you know, a (laughs) long-term project. But I just, I was really, really grateful for that stream. I was grateful for the students who came into it. I was grateful for the, you know, few allied faculty who were involved. And I drew a lot of strength from that. And then I drew a lot of strength from the community folks that I was involved in, from Dudes Club to my research partner. And all of those things helped me to stay connected and stay involved in it. Because I think if it weren't for any of that, there would be no place you would feel really isolated and alien. You would feel like a lone voice. And up until my defense day, there were times that I very much felt like people didn't really see how the work that I was doing was planning work because I was working with an organization that helps people in the justice system. And I was like talking about public health and the history of public health, even though public health and planning are intimately connected, they co-evolved as disciplines. I think it was just really hard. And then on top of that, looking at urban community planning, because planning as a academic pursuit has been around for a while. Indigenous planning, you know, tribal planning in the United States, there's a fairly long history of some decades, maybe four decades of scholarship around that. But what has been a huge ellipsis is urban folks. So that was one of my big motivating factors in my work was to start to break down what I think are colonially constructed divides between urban and rural. It's these dichotomies that get reproduced to really benefit colonial policies and practices. Just like I talked about at the beginning about that status, you know, removing status, giving status. It's all very kind of strategic really intended to remove people from their lands, from their identities, from their really strong connections. And that's very much the history of urbanization and the reality of the experiences of urban Indigenous people are that they are not all profoundly disconnected. It's a spectrum of experience, and some people are. Some people cannot return to home communities, but there are other people who do maintain those connections and have always maintained those connections. So... So I really wanted to sort of parse into that and hold planning accountable for its role in dispossessing Indigenous peoples from their lands through these supposedly value-free bylaws and covenants and mechanisms that they used to create space as what Glenn Coulter called herbs nullius, right? The urban space as this open and empty land ready to be settled and, and made coherent through buildings and codes and bylaws and things like that. So I was bringing these pieces together to sort of create this picture of Indigenous community planning in an urban context, and I felt like, at times, like a crazy person. (laughs) 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 Because I didn't feel like I had colleagues that were really excited about this or wanted to enter into dialogue with me necessarily about it. And, you know, how could a community of drug users in the downtown east side be considered community? I was actually asked that. How can you possibly consider that a community of people? So I had a lot of pushback. But what kept my sanity and what kept me feeling balanced was really, you know, the incredible students and colleagues that I had who I was able to have these really productive conversations with and who, you know, offered different pieces of guidance and things to consider throughout my journey. So it was, it was hard, but it was well so, worth it. So doing all of this work, you've maintained a film practice. In fact, you have two films about to be screened at the Vancouver International Film Festival. Can you talk a little bit about that part of the work that you do? Obviously, yeah. it's interconnected and intertwined, but it's also mm-hmm. circulating in the world in a different type of way. Yeah. I am so honored to have these films be shown. 
I always kind of maintained my hand in video work, mostly in an educational context. I did videos in the Faculty of Medicine. I did some videos with the First Peoples Heritage Language and Culture Council. And when I met a colleague in planning, she was part of my cohort that started with me in the PhD program, Jessica Hallenbach. I started doing a lot more film and video work because she has a company called Lantern Films. And so I started collaborating with them. And, you know, earlier I was describing different models, different ways of working. And that's what I've always been interested in. I always justify not going into film more by by saying that I don't think I could work within those structures. I feel like it might be just an excuse now, but I think there's some truth there that I just, I want to be collaborative. I want to be community oriented. I want to ensure that where possible ownership of these stories and materials resides with the people themselves, resides with the community. You know, that the notion of reciprocity and respect and those kinds of values that are embedded within for example, things like that we call OCAP principles, ownership, control, access, and possession. I really, you know, feel that that's the starting point for how you should do your work. And But in film, there's this expectation that you maintain this creative control, that you have your vision. But I felt with the work with Lantern that there could be both, that you could have a creative vision, that you could work collaboratively. And so I was really, really honoured to be asked to Uh, participate in a series of short films that Lantern were producing through Knowledge Network that were a part of BC 150, which is very ironic, right, that I'm participating in this. But what we decided to do was to make, you know, these 10 short films. I was involved in three of them that looked beyond the facade. That was the title of the theme. So it's really looking at buildings and looking at the stories behind these buildings. So we did one on the Tomahawk Restaurant in North Vancouver. Yeah. Amazing. I did one on Vancouver Aboriginal Friendship Centre, which is one of the ones showing at Fifth. And then I did one called The Train Station, which is the most personal and most connected to my own life and experience. And this does seem to happen. I, I put ideas out and I don't intend them to be about me, but somehow it comes around. And it's okay because it's really important that as an Indigenous filmmaker, I share uh, my own story and embed myself in things. You know, it's expected as part of that process, I think, of reciprocity that we, we acknowledge that we're not kind of an objective outsider. We are a part of what we're doing. So, yeah, so the, the Bank for Aboriginal Friendship Centre story also firmly ties to my research because it's really about the development of urban governance structures. So the Friendship Centre movement is, of course, a really, really important cross-country, it's a national coalition of organizations that developed in really unique and different ways, depending on you know where you were in Canada. But starting about the 1950s, they were institutions that were meant to actually initially to to integrate Indigenous peoples into, assimilate into non-Indigenous urban society. And that didn't work, surprisingly enough. And these friendship centres actually started to develop their own unique programming and their own unique approaches to community development. And I, you know, characterize that as early community planning. So I was really interested to do this story about the Vancouver Friendship Centre, which the building where it's at now is actually a nightclub way back in the day. Um, (laughs) And it's a very different space now. And then the other story about the train station started out with a picture, a photograph of me in 1974 or 1975 at the train station at the residential school. So I think a little known story, maybe people don't realize, but children were brought to residential schools by train as well as other means. And so we thought this you know, could be one of the stories that we tell. And I did try to find somebody to tell their story. And I did get a lot of feedback. I got different stories, but I didn't find anybody who's willing to publicly share their story. And I understand why, because that's a really hard history. And then I was telling Jess, Jessica Hallenbeck, that the story about my grandmother, who used to walk those tracks on weekends to visit my dad, and she'd walk the 10 kilometers, you know, from our village to the residential school to visit him and would bring food. And, and my dad credits that with saving his life. Many years ago, I interviewed my dad about his experience as a residential school. And he said to me at that point, like 95% of his class had died that he'd gone to school with. And that was another clue, you know, like our families who dropped these clues. And I was like, why? 
why is that? And, you know, that profound, you know, that's what residential schools did. They profoundly disconnected children from their families, from each other. The boys and girls couldn't even, couldn't talk to his sisters. You know, they were on the girls' side. So it wasn't even just within the nation. It was within direct immediate families. And, and I always knew that there was this distance, but I never understood why and where that had come from. And I realized how fortunate my dad was. It was a huge protective factor that his mother would come to see him. Um, and he didn't go to school until he was nine years old. So, you know, he had all of those years in the community to be a yinkad and a boy and the freedom and everything associated with that. And that was another huge factor in terms of his survival and his ability, you know, to kind of go on and assume a leadership position in our community. So that's what this story, it's an animated two-minute film that just sort of captures a lot <laughs> in a short period of time. I've been kind of, I guess, honing my craft over the years yeah. through these different projects, and, and I'm about to embark on feature length. So Amazing. <laughs> this is um, pretty incredible, pretty incredible. I was mentioning to somebody the other day that back when I was doing my master's, uh, at one point on my committee, I had a filmmaker named Christine Welsh, who's a Métis filmmaker. And I remember thinking at the time, I think that's what I would love to do, be an academic, do my research and make films. And the fact that I'm able to do these many years later is very humbling, mm -hmm. frankly. It's just, it's, yeah, it's amazing. You are a busy person, my goodness. <laughs> now in your role as a faculty member in health sciences, what areas of research are you looking at right now? And I think one of the questions I'd also have is sort of mm -hmm. um, in the kind of really immersive community-engaged research that you do with communities that you have long-standing relationships with, communities let you in and they tell you stories. And at some point, there's an ethics of what part of the story do you tell and what part of the story don't you tell. Mm -hmm. I can remember working on a book with a friend of mine going up to Fort Mac and going into communities where people share all sorts of stories and this question of like, what part of that story is for you to share back to a public and which part isn't. Mm -hmm. This kind of editing and thinking through of how you think about that part of your work. Yeah, yeah. I think there were two parts to that question, but so on that piece about how do you know what to share, I think for me the key to that is having um, with my doctoral work, I had a community advisory committee. And I mean, for many years when I was working, for example, in the Division of Aboriginal People's Health at UBC, I was at UBC for about 15 years in a, a range of different capacities. I was actually through that work able to participate on a lot of different research opportunities. And it was always really, really important to have that iterative process, to have those you know, deep community connections, to establish the trust, to establish the relationships, to know so that the community knows you're coming back, that you're not being extractive, you're not just taking it away. And these are hard things. These are hard things, and these I know these are things that I'm going to have to really figure out in the coming years. I feel like I've been really fortunate to be able to go back, to have the resources to go back, to have the time, because that's what it's really about. It's really about having the time to build the relationships, to report back, to, you know, um, to do the knowledge gathering, and then to bring it back to the community and get that reaction and get that feedback and then to revise it. And if you have to go back again. And so that's a huge challenge in a colonial institution that has timelines on research, and you need to produce results, you need to produce reports, you need to do things in a, you know, a bounded length of time. And I mean, my PhD took eight years, in part because I was just doing all that work, and I know that we don't always have the luxury of that. But I think that from the very beginning of the process, you have to, as an Indigenous researcher, I have to have a really clear talk about expectations, about consent, you know, that... that piece of consent that has to be, it's not just a one-time thing, it's like a continuous and ongoing process so that as things change, as conditions in the community change, as even members of the advisory change, you're ensuring that you're meeting those community needs 
and that you're sharing what needs to be shared, what's appropriate. So it's, it's really embedded, continuous, ongoing work, and you have to be flexible and responsive as a researcher. I do think this is some of the hardest advice for people. It's hard work. I remember in my film studies, I wanted to have a consent process where people would consent to every image, every frame that I used. And people said, do not do that. Indigenous filmmakers said, do not have a consent <laughs> process. Like, you will never get a film made. And so I think, you know, there's, there's sort of a pendulum because in my master's, everything went to the community, all the material. I returned everything. But then I had nothing to, <laughs> I mean, I had to, and it's fine. Like, I think that's, that's okay. It's good. But negotiating some form of sharing that is ethical and appropriate and going to you know, benefit everybody, I think, is a good way to do that work. It's not an all or nothing kind of approach. Yeah, so I really do believe in embedding within research agreements, like how is this going to benefit and give back? So one of the pieces of work I'm doing right now is I have a partnership with the Skookum Lab out in Surrey, who are part of the Surrey Urban Indigenous Leadership Committee. It's just amazing to me because when I approached them about doing some health research because I want to develop my relationships out in Surrey, mm-hmm. it was an area, just a place that I realized like really, really, you know, hugely growing Indigenous community and the programs and services are heavily concentrated in Vancouver and there's a great need to understand what the needs are out in Surrey and to support greater growth and development there. And they were just coming into an annual cycle where they were deciding what they were going to be looking at for this coming year, and it was health. And one of the things that they wanted to look at, because a lot of their community members in preliminary, or you know, the, the research they've done so far, have identified culture as being really important to their health. And that was a finding from my doctoral research as well, was that, you know, it's the title of it. It's from Ceremony Up, meaning, you know, that's kind of like the grassroots kind of level. That's where the good things happen. And that's what urban Indigenous community members talk a lot about, is the need for those connections. But, and so they, they were interested in what does that mean? You know, what does that mean? And I think that this really ties into a lot of my research in terms of breaking down those boundaries, like between urban and rural, on-reserve and off-reserve, because there are reserve communities out there, and they share often the teachings with folks. And, you know, what does it look like to practice your culture? And what are the many dynamic ways that urban Indigenous peoples do that? whether it's within their own cultural context or within the people whose lands, you know, we are uninvited guests. So it's an opportunity for me to sort of delve more deeply into the complexities of that and to kind of parse that out. And it's what they want, you know, in talking with my community partners, they want to know that. So again, I'm really grateful to be able to kind of partner up and do that work. So I'm focused a lot on that. And and then to further break down this divide between urban and rural, I'm doing some work, hopefully up with my community. We have an ecosystem restoration plan that came out of the 2018 wildfires, which destroyed a huge swath of our territory or burned down. But the force of the fires was so intense that they figured that there are some plants that actually will not take root again because of the nature of the heat of those flames. So there's some, you know, big questions in there. And part of this restoration plan is to reinsert cultural values on the land. But I think some of those cultural values are really about return to land as well. How do we facilitate our reoccupation of those lands from wherever we are, whether we're here in Vancouver or Prince George or in whatever places? How can we feed this ecological restoration into our political and social ends, you know, which is to occupy our lands again and to assert our rights, our responsibilities really to those lands. So I'm working with a team at SFU who are looking at fire ecology and looking at traditional medicines and I'm, you know, hoping to kind of feed some of my work into that. And then this other film project that I'm working on, which is a feature-length film, will hopefully actually document some of that work, some of that restoration work. Because the documentary will look at the impacts of a massive dam project that flooded out a huge area of carrier territory and that affected our salmon along the Nechaco River and our white sturgeon populations. Well, our salmon are in danger destroyed it, and then the white sturgeon are um, endangered. And uh, and so part of that is looking at those traumatic and ongoing impacts, but also how communities are practicing 
resurgence are resilient and doing those kinds of things like the ecosystem restoration plan and there's a guardianship program and and how we've always maintained these connections even in you know the most apocalyptic of times we've retained those connections so it's all tying together it's all of a piece so it is a lot of work but it's I think the interconnections are such that I don't have to completely <laughs> shift gears entirely because I think they all really kind of weave together and inform each other in a nice way. Well, that's got to be pretty busy being both professor and uh, filmmaker, but I understand <laughs> through my research that you're also involved in a band called Salt Licks. Can you please come clean on this project? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. The best part of my week. <laughs> really, truly. Well, two things. When I talked about those things that helped me get through the PhD, the Salt Licks was absolutely one of them. In fact, I think one of our other members, Mae Frales, she thanked the Salt Licks in her dissertation, as did I also thank the Salt Licks in my dedication. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to make music. Do you make music? Uh, no, I, I don't. But because I um, host a podcast on SoundCloud, the first thing that comes up, it lists me as a yeah. musician through okay. some real algorithm. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. people have asked me about it and I don't have anything to say back. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I was at North of 60, actually, we it was filmed in Bright Creek, Alberta, a stand-in for the Northwest Territories. And we lived in Calgary. And I went to a party one time and they were, you know, jamming in the basement. Somebody was like, oh, you want to like hop on the drums? And I'm like, I've never played the drums before. So I hopped on the drums and they taught me a few things and I was doing it. And then they started playing to what I was doing. And I just thought, this is the most amazing thing ever. And so I went back to Victoria and got a jam space and was practicing. But I never found my people. You know, I was really a part of the punk scene and the metal scene in Victoria back in the heyday. And and I went to, you know, many, many, many shows. But I just, I didn't find people who were at the same place that I was to make music with. So Along comes the Salt Licks, and all of us were, you know, various times doing our PhDs, you know, some of us had families, and so we were kind of, we just were in a similar place. And the criteria was that you couldn't know how to play an instrument or have minimal, minimal contact with playing instruments. So that really took the pressure off as well. But I think we all loved it so much. And that feeling of gelling together, of, you know, actually having, I mean, we have recordings where at the end we just peel off into this laughter of joy because we've just nailed it. We've done this amazing thing. So yeah, it does my heart and soul a lot of good to play music. So, yeah, I'm a drummer. <laughs> I'm a drummer, and I love it. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> us on Below the Radar. I'm just so happy that you're a colleague at SFU, and I look forward to working and collaborating with you in whatever way in the future. So, Thank you so much. It's been an honor to share some of my stories, and thank you for the invitation. And I look forward to working with you, too. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Liana Patrick. Read more about her work and SFU's Community Engaged Research Initiative at the links in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar. <laughs>